Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, the time to be in your word and thank you for your word. Lord, you've, uh, you've blessed us uh, with truth. Lord, communicated to us in writing that we can, uh, we can sit under and, and learn from you. And Lord, we know that your word teaches us and guides us and directs us. Lord, we know that your word challenges us and brings us comfort. And Lord, that you do all of these things uh, simultaneously and, and also at different times based on where we are at that moment with you. And, and Lord, we love it. No wonder it's said of your word that it's living and active uh, and able, Lord, to do a cutting work in the deepest places. And, and Lord, that's our goal. We want to sit under your word to hear from you. And so, Lord, I do pray that uh, where we need to be challenged, that your word will do that this morning. Where we need to be comforted, it'll, it'll do that. Lord, where we need to simply be taught um, to know the right way to go, Lord, you would use your word uh, to do that. Um, so, Father, uh, we pray that your word would be everything you've designed it to be uh, in our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we've been looking... Solomon, in starting around chapter 9 or so, he's been employing this idea or this method of contrasting different things. He's been trying, contrasting things that are good and things that are evil, people or things that are wise and things that are foolish, the righteous and the wicked. He's been going back and forth contrasting, and he doesn't typically say it, but in that whole process of drawing this contrast between the good and the evil, the righteous and the wicked, in that whole process of doing that, he's encouraging us, really his son, to choose the way of wisdom, to walk in the way of wisdom. And if you know about Solomon's life, you know that Solomon wasn't always a man who walked in the way of wisdom, despite having been taught. And he tells us, my father taught me these same things. Despite having been taught these things when he was young, he didn't always heed, he didn't always obey, and he didn't always walk in these ways. And as a result, he felt the pain, the difficulties, the consequences, all those things that God said would come if he ignored him. he felt that. And what Solomon is trying to do here, some would say, well, then you have no right to speak into my life then. And Solomon said, no, because look, many of us were parents, and we've blown it many times, and we blew it when we were younger or whatever. Does that mean all of a sudden we can't speak into the life of our children? Certainly not. If we haven't kind of come around to what God would have us to do, then, yeah, you have no right to speak because you're a hypocrite. But we all have a past. And Solomon is saying, look, I experienced such things in my past. I don't want you to experience them. I want to save you from these difficulties and these pains and these consequences. And so he writes these things to us. And he ultimately, as I said, he wrote them to his son. But really, ultimately, they come to us. And so we would be wise then to hear these words, and, and I think many of us have been seeking to do that. So here we are now in chapter 14, and you'll notice he begins by saying in verse 1, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hand tears it down. Now the example and the testimony of Scripture is for the husband to serve as the spiritual head of his home. And sadly, too many men, too many men neglect that calling. And they do not serve as the head of their home, spiritually in particular. And they allow their wife to take the lead in that regard. But the scripture calls the man to be the spiritual head of a home and to influence that home and to direct that home. And too many men, as I said, shirk that responsibility. But even in a home where a man is seeking to be the head that God has called him to be spiritually and seeking to fulfill that God-given responsibility, even in that home, 
so much of the child rearing, so much of the nurturing falls upon the wife and the mother of that household. And the wise woman, as Solomon tells us here, takes that responsibility very, very seriously, knowing that it is by her counsel and by her example and by her leading that she's able to direct the steps of her family in accordance with the word of God. And so she takes that role very seriously and directs them in accordance with the word of God and the wisdom of God. And because the word of God and the wisdom of God is immovable, then that woman's household becomes immovable as well. It's built upon a sure foundation, the sure foundation of God's word. And too often, the building up of our homes and the investment into our families is seen as less than our abilities deserve. And we hear that a lot of times. And so you have a college-educated woman that is seeking to pour into her home, and people will say, look, you're wasting your life. You should be out. You should be doing this. And you can be out, and you can be doing those things. But the, the idea is that to the neglect of your family, you need to run after your own life. And the wise woman realizes, no, I'm going to pour into my children. The wise man realizes that. I'm going to pour into my children knowing that that is the way of wisdom. And so the wise woman, the wise man, steadily invest themselves into their spouse, into their children, into their community. And Solomon, in so many words, is saying, son of mine, I don't know who he wrote to, be that type of person. Marry that type of person. Verse 2, Solomon continues, he says, whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Four times in this chapter alone, reference is made to fearing the Lord. And fearing the Lord, or to fear the Lord, it means to honor the Lord, it means to respect the Lord, it means to submit yourself to the Lord. And so a person that fears the Lord walks in integrity, as we see in our passage here. Whoever walks in uprightness, whoever walks in integrity, fears the Lord. A person that fears the Lord walks in integrity. A person that fears man will be willing to do something when no man is around that they would never do if there was a bunch of people around observing. A person that fears man is willing to do those things if they think no one else is paying attention. And they'll change the way they act around certain people and around no one. But a person that fears the Lord acts consistently and acts with integrity, whether they're in a crowd of witnesses, so to speak, or they're secluded in complete anonymity. A person that fears the Lord is going to act consistently and with integrity. Now notice what Solomon makes clear here, and I think it's significant. A person's conduct is a reflection of that person's attitude toward the Lord. So if our lie, it's our lives, I should say, that prove whether or not we are really walking with the Lord or not. Our lives will prove that out. And so we can say that we love the Lord, and we can say praise the Lord, and we can say I just want to, I, I walk in fear of the Lord, but our lives are going to bear out whether that is actually true or not. And so Jesus said in John 14, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if a person says, I love Jesus, I love God, and then they go walk in their own way and do their own thing and ignore the commandments of God, does that person really love the Lord? Not according to Jesus's words and not according to where Solomon is going. John the disciple, he said this, whoever says that he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way that Christ walked. And so if a person refuses to bring themselves into submission to God and his ways, that person's life bears testimony that they don't really fear the Lord. 
despite what that person might say. But in reality, look at the rest of that verse. In reality, what it, it communicates is that they actually despise the Lord and they actually despise his instructions. So stop, consider. Consider your life. Is your life marked by submission to God and his ways? Or is it marked by submission to self and self's ways? Now, this is not to say that you're not going to fall or stumble. And so I, I don't want you to get this impression that, you know, I'm, I'm not with Jesus if i driving down a road, I blow it, and I scream and yell at somebody. I, I'm not suggesting that if you fall or stumble that you don't necessarily fear the Lord or you're not walking with the Lord or what happens. But when that happens, do you acknowledge that as sin? Do you turn from that as sin and say, what am I doing, Lord, I'm sorry, and go in and walk in repentance, so to speak, with the desire not to fall back into that sin again? I hope that is the case because that'll be the indicator of where your heart really is. Because again, the one who fears the Lord walks in uprightness, verse 2 says. Verse 3 says, By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Now the King James translates this with good reason, I believe, as where it says, By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back. It refers to it as the rod of pride. And Matthew Henry, in commenting on this verse, he said, Where there is pride in the heart, and no wisdom in the head to suppress it, it commonly shows itself in the words. It's so funny. It, like, that, that's kind of a harsh statement, you know, but it, it's so eloquently, nicely said. You're like, yeah. And he's like, I'm talking about you. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, okay, but it sounds pretty. Where there is pride in the heart and no wisdom in the head to suppress it, it commonly shows itself in the words. The, I, the idea here in this particular passage is that the fool, because of their pride, runs their mouth in such a way that they get themselves into trouble with their mouth. And they're going to have to feel the consequences because of something that they came out and said. And Solomon tells us that the fool will have to receive a beating, essentially, for his arrogant talk. Now, the wise individual, on the other hand, by taking care of the words that they allow to come out of their mouths and taking care not to let pride root up within their heart, because they take care in those two things, they preserve themselves from any such ramifications. And so again, we see it's the condition of the heart and what we allow to settle in our heart. Do we allow pride to settle into our heart? And again, as that verse that we've looked at a number of times, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So if you deal with the heart issue, you protect the words that come out of your mouth. You protect the words that come out of your mouth. You protect yourself from getting a beating on the back, so to speak, with the ramifications of your words. Make sense? All right, thank you. Verse 4 it says, oh, I love this one. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. What a neat little verse. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. I think this is one of those little phrases that you can memorize uh, and just sort of tell yourself as you go through life circumstances, well, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. Uh, and it's just a good, helpful reminder to put things in perspective, oxen, any farm animal really, and, and think back to the days where, you know, you're not using tractors to do the work, but you're using a farm animal like an ox uh, to do the work. Oxen or any farm animal, they are a lot of work, and they require a lot of upkeep, and they make a mess. Just in the ordinary course of their life, they make a mess, but they sure are helpful and profitable for a farmer. The strength of the ox adds to the wealth of the farm. And it makes it well worth the use of a little bit of time that needs to be spent to clean up the stall because the ox 
is making a, met the, a mess there. So isn't it better then to have some dust and dirt around knowing that the labor of the ox will lead to a bountiful harvest? The answer is it's yes. All right, it's better to have to deal with a little bit of dust and dirt knowing the benefit that this ox is going to bring to the process. Now, most of us here, none of us, we don't have farms, things like that. I don't have an ox, Greg, and so I'm not sure how this applies. I don't think Solomon is just speaking of oxen and farms. I'll say this, progress is often messy in our lives, in our families, in our ministry. Life and progress is often messy. I remember when my kids were young, I was trying to get grass to grow out in front of our house. We have these two trees, and they're kind of lower to the ground trees, and the kids used to like to climb around in them. And I was trying to get grass to grow right underneath those two trees. Instead, we had these dirt spots. The problem was, since the kids like to climb up the trees and jump down into the trees, all the ground underneath the trees were trampled down and dirt, and if it rained, there was mud. And here I am trying to till it up, put seed in there, everybody stay off the grass, you know, this kind of thing, get the grass to grow, and the kids are just out there climbing the trees, having a fun time. Initially, it was pretty frustrating. Jake, you remember? Yeah, yes, it was. Initially, it was a little frustrating. But the frustration of the dirt spots in the front yard, it just hit me one time. Same type of thing. We had a problem in the backyard as well. Apparently, the problem was me. I kept everywhere, every problem, I was the one, the common denominator. But the frustration of the dirt spots in the front yard, it paled in comparison to the benefit of having laughing, happy, climbing kids out on those particular trees. And so where, what's the verse say? Where... There are no oxen, the manger is clean. If I didn't have those kids, I'd have nice lush grass, so to speak. I choose the kids. Some of you might choose grass, but I chose the kids. <laughs> Chuck Smith used to tell a story. Chuck Smith was a pastor of uh, Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa back in the, all the way into the 1980s, but back in 90s, I guess. I don't know, a long time. But back in the 1960s, he tells a story and it was right around the time that God began to do a work that became known as the Jesus Movement. And many hippie kids were coming to the Lord. Many hippie kids throughout America were flocking out to Southern California. And essentially, they were homeless-type kids. But it was nice, and it was warm, and it was sunny, and everything was great. And they were having the time of their lives. And many of those kids began to discover who Jesus is. And God used Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa as a key part of that process, at least one key part in that part of the nation in that process. And so many kids are starting to come, thousands of kids are starting to come to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. That was right around the same time that Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa got a new carpet for their sanctuary. And here are these hundreds, eventually thousands of hippie kids that begin pouring into the doors of Calvary Chapel. And they, they're typical hippies, Grace, you'll remember. They're long hair. I love you, buddy. <laughs> they're long hair, their bell bottoms, their bare feet, and on their bare feet, they brought dirty old bare feet into, into that brand new carpeted area. And now there was a problem because we got this lovely carpet. God's doing a great work, but these kids are ruining this carpet. And one of the leaders of the church decided he would put a sign up because apparently people were grumbling about it. I can't believe they're ruining the carpet, these kids. So he decided to put a sign up, you know, shoes required. If you don't have shoes, you can't come in. Well, many of these hippie kids didn't even have shoes or whatever. And so now I can't come to church anymore? Well, yeah, that's what they were deciding. And Chuck w walks in the church one day, and he sees this sign, you know, shoes required, or you can't come in without shoes. And he took it down. 
And he had a confrontation with some of the leaders, and he said, I'll tear the carpet out before I prevent kids from coming in here. And the point that I'm trying to, to make here is the church, they face this choice. They could either exclude the kids from coming and maintain their clean carpets, or they could swing the doors wide open and deal with a little mess. And wisely, they chose to deal with a little mess. They took the sign down, and they replaced the carpet every year, if that's what it took. They probably got rid of the carpet altogether. I don't even know. Uh, but the point is simply, as the verse said, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. And in our lives, as we are in this process of going through life, dealing with things, we're always going to have the good with the bad. And we take the bad because of the benefit of the good. At least these people have life and work and ministry that they can deal with the frustrations of it. And so we deal with a little bit of the frustrations. And I think a verse like this, it just puts things in perspective. It puts things in perspective. I remember when, when the kids were young, now they do their own laundry or whatever, it just seems there was laundry daily. Like how could there be a whole nother load of laundry, you know, in this house? We just spent, you know, the whole weekend doing laundry. And you pick up all the toys. I picked up these toys yesterday. And now, you know, the, the living room is a mess once again. I can't believe this, what is going on. It just puts it into perspective where there are no oxen, the stalls are clean. Okay? Good word? Yeah, memorize that one. Verse 5. Solomon speaks about honesty, speaks about integrity. He says, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. Now, we see there this idea of a faithful witness. In my mind, it goes toward a person that is going on a witness stand or something like that. And with that in mind, a, it's a note is a well-functioning society, society, I should say, depends upon the truthfulness of its citizenry. A well-functioning society depends upon the truthfulness of its citizenry. And if the people are internally motivated to be truthful, then externally we need to create laws to punish people that aren't being truthful. But a well-functioning society depends upon the truthfulness of its citizenry. And as such, how careful then we should be to be utterly truthful at all times. And so a witness, whether you're in a court or law or not, that is conscientious is not going to dare to give a testimony that is in the least bit untrue because of the conscientiousness toward truthfulness. And I, I would also add this. I think there is a way to technically be true but have the intention and the motivation of trying to deceive someone. And the child of God shouldn't do that as well. The child of God should seek to communicate faithfully the message. Not just the, the right words, just to technically said. I did it. And a man or woman of integrity seeks to have truth come forth. They value truth so much. Not just small T truth, but capital T truth. They value the Lord so much that they're going to be a person of honesty and integrity. Verse 6, Solomon says, A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Notice there, it says the scoffer seeks if I can add to the scripture, I will. I'll put air quotes around the word seeks, that a software seeks wisdom, seeks understanding, seeks knowledge, but they never find it as it says here. And the reason why they never find it is because the reality is, is that the scoffer doesn't want to find it. And that's why I put the word seeks there in parentheses. In their pride, they've determined that they'll accept wisdom, they'll accept understanding, they'll accept knowledge if it agrees with what they've already established is wise and is wisdom, is knowledge, is understanding. 
And such a person then is never going to come to really know wisdom and truth and understanding. Because the way to higher learning is not through pride, but it's through deeper humility. And the scoffer here has already determined what they believe, and they're not willing to accept anything else, and thus they never will accept anything else. But it's the one who readily admits his need for instruction that the Father gives instruction to. And so the scoffer may inquire, but the scoffer doesn't really set his heart upon the answer. And I'm reminded of, and there's some question as to what was going on in the heart of Pilate when he said to Jesus, what is truth? And he inquired what truth is, but do you notice he picks up and he leaves before an answer is even given? Did he really want to know what truth was? Or did he just make some sarcastic or snarky comment uh, there about what is truth? You can tell whether you are a scoffer or not based on your answer to this question, will you go where the truth leads? Will you go where the truth leads or will you stop at a particular point and say, no, I'm not interested in going in that particular direction? The man of understanding will go where the truth leads. And in that humility, God will reveal more and more to that person. And so what I have found is folks that are open to God's word, just tell me what God's word says. Folks that are open to God's word grow exponentially in their understanding of God's word as they're essentially open to say, all right, Lord, teach me what you have for me. I'm ready to learn. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to argue my point and prove that this, that doesn't make any sense for these days and my experience or whatever. They're the ones that really begin to grow. The, the word of God, God has a way of just causing it. And you'll hear people say it, that it just makes sense. I get it. I understand it. I may not be the smartest guy in the world and I may not measure up with everyone else, but it just makes sense. Can't you see? And other folks will look at it like, no, I can't see. When Jesus ministered on the earth during his, uh, his years there of ministry that we have recorded in the Gospels, he would often use the teaching method of a parable. You're familiar, I'm sure. And parables, as we've looked at, were just simple, relatable, easily identifiable stories. Jesus would tell a parable and everyone immediately could picture it in their mind. That's how easily identifiable it was to his original listeners. And he would do that to convey a greater spiritual message. What I find is interesting, if you look at Jesus' telling of the parables, and we have a specific situation where he gets into it, sometimes those parables had the effect of enlightening people, and sometimes those same parables with the same crowd that is in front of them cause some people to be like, what's he talking about? And in Matthew 13, we have this. It says, he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets. This is his disciples. Why do you speak in parables, they said. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, those who wouldn't receive, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and some will say will not see, some versions, and hearing they will not hear, nor will they understand. Solomon knew, he said it, knowledge is easy to the man of understanding. That's what Jesus is getting at here, that this simple story can be understood by the one who wants to understand it. And so that's why I would suggest whenever you sit down to read your word, and so you come to church and you sit and you're ready to listen to the word be taught, or you're having your quiet time at home, or you're about to start a Bible study with a group of friends, every time you get there that you take time to settle your heart and get your heart right with the Lord. 
confess any sin or things or stuff you've been dealing with during that particular day, and then essentially just end your prayer with something to the effect of, Lord, my heart is open to receive what you have for me now. Give me a heart to see. Give me a heart to understand. And that's a prayer the Lord wants to answer. And so you bring that to him. Knowledge is easy to the man of understanding. It just begins to make sense to you in a way perhaps it didn't previously. Okay? Verse 7. I think I have a water. Excuse me, one second. Verse 7 says, Leave the presence of a fool. Please don't run right now. For there you do not meet words of knowledge. I would say of this, sometimes it just isn't worth it. You can jot that down. Sometimes it just isn't worth it. Now certainly we want to be people that speak truth into other people's lives, even people that perhaps don't initially agree with us. And we want to be people that are used to help people see the error of their ways and to come to a knowledge of the truth and begin a relationship with God. But there comes a point in time, there comes a point in that interaction where it becomes clear that the person has no interest in your words of wisdom, that they are full bent on their foolishness. And Solomon then says, your best bet in an instance like that is to leave is to leave the presence of that particular person essentially he says it's to end the conversation because you're not getting anywhere when it becomes so evident that the person is bent on folly with no concern about righteousness it's just best to leave the person to themselves and so when we would go out and we would do street witnessing or i hear some of the guys that go down and they witness on the boardwalk when i was in russia one time i remember a scenario like this you would get into a conversation with someone and you realize the person just wants to argue with you and fight with you and take up your time they have no interest in really hearing and learning they want to use it as a time of mockery essentially you you fish a little you, you go at it you have this conversation but at some point it becomes clear that it's just time to move on and so when we were in russia we uh years and years ago we we went to this city called omsk and we were only we were going to visit prisons. That was what we were doing. We were visiting prisons while we were there. But here we are. We come pulling in on a train, and everyone's like, "They're Ameri- We're in Siberia. Omsk is in Siberia. Not a lot of Americans come to uh, Omsk. All right. And so there we are in the middle of Siberia, and 27 of us get off the train, and word began to filter around town. There's a bunch of Americans in town, and so we saw that as an opportunity for ministry. And so we go to our hotel, we kind of unpack, and then we go out to the city square. And people began to flock to talk to the Americans that are from out of town. And we had four translators, 27 of us, four translators, translating with these people. Uh, Very few of them knew English. But all of them had learned English, much like maybe you learned Spanish or French in high school. Do you really know Spanish or French from your little class that you had in high school? Not at all. So these kids come out, or these people, I should say, they come out. And they just want to start talking to us. How are you? I'm like, I'm good. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, but that's all they know. You know, a little bit of this. And, and then they're like, how is America? It's great, man. You know, and, and how's George Bush? He's fine. You know, I don't know who, you know what I mean? But I'm sure he's doing well or whatever. And then finally, our translator, he would pat us like on the leg. And he said, look, and it went beyond that. But he would say, look, this guy's not really interested in hearing about the Lord. He just wants to practice his English. And so we're like, all right, hey, it was really good to meet you. 
See ya. And then you move on and you talk to someone perhaps that will want to hear about the Lord and have that particular opportunity. Um, but when you're in a conversation with someone that is so set in their ways, and it could be street witnessing, all those things I'm describing of, or it could just be an interaction you're having with someone over coffee, but they're so set in their particular ways, there comes a time where, you know what, we're not going anywhere with this. Uh, and I'm getting frustrated through this process and you're not getting anything out of it and your heart is hardening more and more. And so you leave off the conversation. Solomon just says, leave the presence of a fool for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Verse eight says, now the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Now this word prudent, again, it means cautious. It means careful. It means to be thoughtful. You might say it means to look before you leap. And Solomon has said a number of times, he's referenced this idea that a wise person is prudent, that they weigh out all of the uh, aspects of the equation before making their particular decision. And here Solomon says that the wise man or woman demonstrates their wisdom by discerning the way that they go. Whereas the fool, the fool on the other hand, jumps in. Whatever looks good, whatever they anticipate is going to feel good, they jump right into that particular thing. And as we see in our verse here, if it looks good, that doesn't necessarily mean it is good. Because as I said here, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. And so Solomon's word of wisdom to us is a repeated word. He said it before. It's to exercise restraint and careful forethought before committing to something or getting ourselves involved in something. That's the way of wisdom. And again, you get the calls, you know, from the salesperson, the pressure, if you don't decide right now, and that's a clue to me. No, thanks. I'm not interested. If I have to decide right now, I'm deciding no, you know, because I'd rather have the, well, you'll lose your opportunity. That's all right. The Lord will bring another. You called me. He brought you along, so he'll bring another guy. I'm okay. I'm going to use prudence here. I'm going to use wisdom. I'm going to use careful forethought through this whole process. And we save ourselves a lot of trouble in the process. Verse 9 says, Fools mock at the guilt, the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. We see here the fool laughs at sin and mocks the offering for sin. And the reason why he or she does so is because the fool has never realized the seriousness of the one, sin, nor his need for the other, which is the sacrificial offering. Again, to quote Matthew Henry, those that make light of sin make light of Christ. Those that make light of sin make light of Christ because, again, Christ is the offering for sin. And I think some searching questions that I've searched my, my heart with, I'll, now you're going to search your heart with, hopefully is this, is what is it that causes you and I to laugh? What entertains you? What sort of things do you find to be humorous? And then I'll follow that up. If it makes light of sin, should we be giving ourselves to those things, those things that Christ died for? If such humor makes a mockery of Christ's sacrifice, should we be so readily, uh, so should we so readily be ready to take it in? And I, I think we all know the answer, no. And so I just encourage you, look at the things that you look to as entertainment. Look, I'll look to the things I look to as entertainment and ask myself, is Christ pleased uh, in this? Again, it says here, fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. Now, let me give you an additional thought about this. The 
American Standard Version, the ASV, interprets this verse slightly differently. And it interprets it this way. It says, a trespass offering mocketh fools, but among the upright there is goodwill. And the idea there is this, that one that brings their offering for sin, all the while committed to their sin, and somehow thinking that this offering will excuse their sin, is missing the point of the offering altogether. Because if a person is not willing to forsake their sin, any offering that they might bring is of no use to them. It's become, really, as it's become for so many other people, simply a useless religious ritual. And thus, you have this example from that particular verse that uh, the offering, personified as a person, that the offering mocks the foolishness of the offerer. Essentially, the offering, if it were a person, is saying something like this. Do you really think that your religious ritual is going to solve your sin problem? That's the mocking, if you will, of the trespass offering, the sin offering, to the person that is bringing it, who's unwilling to forsake their sin. The one that comes to Christ in sincerity of heart, prepared to forsake sin and embrace Christ, the scripture makes clear there is a covering for that person's sin, for any sin that they might commit. There's a covering for that sin. But for the one that goes through the motions of performing various religious rituals without any intent of forsaking their sin and walking in righteousness, I'll say this on the authority of word, Christ's sacrifice is of no effect for that particular person. If you're coming to the cross of Jesus Christ completely unwilling to forsake your sin and to walk in newness of life, Christ's sacrifice is of no effect for your life. That's what the scripture teaches. And so the person that will come and mock the offering by thinking, well, I'll just throw a few things here and I'll just light a couple candles over there and then I'll go out and do whatever I want to do. You don't understand the offering of Christ. You know, one of the reasons, here we are, what's the year? Well, 2017 was 500 years from the Reformation. And one of the key aspects that spurred Martin Luther, a Catholic priest on, what spurred him on was this tendency, this uh, trend within the church of that day for the sale of indulgences. And the idea was that you can buy a pardon beforehand for your sin. There, there used to be a time where they believed, the Catholic Church, maybe it still does, I don't know, but they believed that a person would have to suffer for their sins after they died in something they called purgatory. It's not a biblical idea, it's an idea that the church came up with. That they would suffer for their sins after they died, and people here on the earth, they could do an offering of sorts to help relieve the suffering of those individuals, their loved ones that have already passed on. And they could do so by buying indulgences. And so you would come to the church and you'd put in an offering, you'd buy indulgences on behalf of, you know, Aunt Sally or whatever, and that would reduce some of her time in purgatory. Then, there, and quite frankly, there was a need to raise a lot of money to build some cathedrals in Europe. And the Pope and some others, they came up with this idea that, well, we can sell indulgences to the living people. And so in preparation for, and this is where it devolved it, because we're wicked. That's why, I don't, I don't know if the priests went out, set out to do it this way, but this is what it devolved to. The people then said, well, hey, it's Friday night. I got big plans for this weekend. I just need to quickly stop by church, buy myself indulgences so I can live it up on the weekend. And there was a particular priest in one of the towns in Germany that got word of this, Martin Luther. And he said, what? Who said what? Where? Who? Come here. We need to have a little talk. 
And then it went all the way up and it end, ended up being this Protestant Reformation where he nails his objections to the church on the door of that church in that particular town. But if, if you think a few little dollars in a, in a bucket or some candles lit or some animals sacrificed or just some lip service to the crucifixion of the Savior will cover you for willful rebellion, you're missing the point of the scripture. And the sacrifice itself will make a mockery of you. When that person, and I hope it's nobody here, but when that person comes to the end of their days, if you will, that offering will mock and say, hey man, there was a sacrifice that was made available for you. Why didn't you take advantage of it? Was your sin really worth the price of your soul? I don't know if that's exactly what it's going to look at, but I hope you get the point that I'm trying to make. Sin is no laughing matter. Sin cost Christ his life to make forgiveness possible. As Solomon will later write in his book, the one, the one who confess and forsakes their sin will obtain mercy. And that's our appropriate way of dealing with sin and approaching sin in our lives. Amen. Verse 10 says, the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. Sometimes there are just joys and sorrow that no other human heart can share with a person. Sometimes we get close, we have a spouse. Sometimes we get close with a dear friend or family member. But the reality is there are depths of sorrow and there are heights of joy that no words can ever communicate. Thus, no one else can ever fully understand what is going on in some of the deepest places of our hearts but the scripture teaches us this that there is one capital o or zero capital o there is one however that is closer than a brother proverbs 18 says a man of many companions may come to ruin but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother and though no other human being may be able to enter into the deepest places of our hearts jesus can enter into those places and i encourage you Bring the lowest places of your heart along with the highest heights to him. For he alone is able to know, the scripture says. Verse 11, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. I I find it interesting to, to note the contrast between the house and the tent. The house of the wicked, the tent of the upright. The house might seem far more stable, but as Solomon makes clear, that house shall be destroyed. Conversely, you look here, the pilgrim's tent, which one would think would offer less security. Here in our passage, it tells us it will actually be the one that abides and flourish because the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And that causes my mind to think ahead to the book of Hebrews. And there again, as I've referenced a few times in our study of Proverbs, you have the catalog of the men and the women of faith that have gone before us. And each of those men and women in that chapter, they live life, as the NIV says, as foreigners and nomads. The ESV calls them strangers and exiles. The King James Version calls them pilgrims. And these were pilgrims of this world merely passing through. As it says in verse 10 of the chapter, Hebrews 11, it says, like Abraham, they were a people who were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And the wise individual lives his or her life with an eye continually on heaven and is careful not to settle in too permanently into this world because we know this world is simply 
passing away. So again, the house of the wicked, though it may appear to be stable and strong, will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Remember, your home is in heaven. Verse 12, Solomon writes, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And I think that's what this entire book has been and will be continue to be about, that there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. There is a way that seems right, and it has seemed right to the natural man for 6,000 years of recorded history, and we know that it is simply proven that the end thereof is death. It seems right. It seems logical. It seems to make sense. An argument can be made as to why this is the way that a particular person should go. But the reality is when that way stands in conflict to God and his ways, that way will always come up short. And that brings us back to the familiar verse of Proverbs that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. I'd encourage you, be careful about winging life. I'll figure it out when I get there. How often uh, people approach life in that particular way. I'll just make the decision when I get there. I'll figure it out. Winging life according to what feels right or seems right or what everyone else is saying is right. Because again, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Keep your heart as a follower of Christ. Keep your heart and your mind fixed on the one that knows that which is right. Because as the scripture says, he will lead you in the way of everlasting. Amen. Verse 13, even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. Uh, may be grief. You know, I think of how many people are partying it up on a Friday or Saturday night that are really masking incredible pain and grief that has taken up residence within their heart. And some of you, you've been there. And you know what that is like. And you're hurting and you're aching, but you just want to drown your sorrows or, or something for a period of time and mask it. How many people partying it up on a Friday or Saturday evening are desperately hoping to find that which will finally bring an end to their heartache and pain? If I could only find that experience that'll take away the pain. If I could only come into that relationship with that person, that'll take away the pain. The reality is this. Even the temporary joy of that experience, of that relationship, etc. Even the temporary joy will not remove the person's aching heart because we know that only the Lord can bring true joy. And when we depend on our circumstances for our joy, we become a slave to the external. We become a victim of time and of chance. So we ha if we happen to pick the right party, the right activity, the right event to go to, and it can just stir our hearts, well, lucky us. Wow, I'm joyful. And then two weeks later, we're looking for the next big thing that would come. We become a slave to those things that are outside of us, hoping that they'll be able to have the impact that our hearts are desiring. Our joy will come and go depending on life circumstances. But when Christ's joy remains in us, our joy is full. Jesus said this, John 15, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Full complete, total, filled up, finally realized. All different ways that you can translate that particular verse. That's the longing of every heart. 
Every one of our hearts is the same, and everyone we come into contact with is the same. I finally want to get to that place where my heart is filled up, and I'm not, it's not draining away, and I'm not looking for something else to fill it up again. I want to get to that particular place. And we try all sorts of things to get there. And the reality, Jesus says, that that joy is only found in him. That's the longing of every heart. And I'd encourage you. It's the longing of your heart. Make sure you're going to the right place to have your, your heart filled with the joy that you're longing for. And now our final verse, verse 14. It says, The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. This is the only time in the Bible that the word backslider is used. Now, the word backsliding is used either 12 or 13 times, depending on the version that you're reading. But this is the only time that the word backslider is used. It's a term many of us are familiar with. A backslider is one who has given up ground previously taken for God. They're a person who knows the way of wisdom and yet chooses to walk in the way of folly. And what I I think is important for us to take notice of here, let me tell you, I don't want to be a backslider. Praise the Lord, I've been walking with the Lord since I came to know him when I was about 17, 16 years old. I guess I was 17 years old when I came to know him. I've been walking with him during that time. doesn't mean I haven't sinned, but I've been walking with him during that time. I never had a period that I might look at and say, well, that was my period of backsliding. And quite frankly, that's my goal in life. I want to come to the end of my days. Hopefully, I'll live out my days or whatever it may be, and I'll be 80, 90 years old and come to the end of my days and say, The Lord was faithful, and I walked with him every day of that time. That's what I want to get to. So I don't want to have any period of my time where I can look back to and say, well, that was my period of backsliding. And I'd like you to take note of this, because I imagine that's what we all want, right? If we're in a good place with the Lord right now, we want to be in this place, if not a better place, in the end of our days when we come to the end of our time. So I think what's important for us to take notice of here is this, that backsliding always begins in the heart. See here, it says, the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. It begins in the heart, and then it shows itself in the person's ways. Because whatever is going on on the inside of us will sooner or later make its way out into the way that we live our lives. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of of his ways. This is why Solomon said a few chapters back, a number of chapters back, this is why Solomon emphasized the importance of guarding our heart. And so in Proverbs chapter 4, he said, keep your heart with all vigilance. That means nothing else matters is what all vigilance means. That you need to keep your heart with all vigilance, be on guard, lest your heart go astray, because backsliding begins in the heart. Our outward behavior, our outward behavior may look the part, but sooner or later the desires of our heart are going to win out. And many of us, we learn the part and it becomes sort of habit. We live it out in our lives just kind of by habit. Some of us, we just get old and we're old people and old people don't run around and club and all that kind of stuff. And so we look like we're pretty good. And the reality is what's going on in the heart? What's going on inside of your heart? Because that eventually is going to manifest itself or not. Now, let me say this. I think that's great news. And here's why I think this verse is great news. Because believe it or not, the converse is also true. And so hear me out here. Your outward behavior. So before I was saying your outward behavior might look great. 
but what's going on inside of the heart is really bad? Well, now let me suggest this. Your outward behavior may not look that great, but if the condition of your heart is desiring that it would, that will eventually play itself out in your life as well. Let me read these words. Our outward behavior may not look the part, but sooner or later, the desires of our heart will win out. Look at the second half of the verse. A good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. Now, your ways may not yet measure up to what you desire your ways to be. Think of Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul, Paul said, you know, I do that which I don't want to do, and that which I don't want to do, I do. You know, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's outward behavior didn't necessarily at all times measure up with what he truly desired. But I'll say this to you. If your heart is right, your ways eventually will. Solomon says that a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. That's the process of reformation that God is doing in each one of us. And that is glorious news. For any of us that want to walk with the Lord, the Lord is doing a process of reformation. And if you keep bringing your heart in line with him and his ways and his desires, he'll begin to change the outward behavior of your life. Many years ago, almost 20 years ago now, I was driving home from work and a car took a sharp corner and it came right into my lane. And so I'm coming head into this car that is taking this particular sharp corner. And it was one of those instances where you have no time to think, no time to process, no time to do anything. You just do, and whatever is in your heart or mind, that's what comes out of your mouth. So here I am driving. This car is over by Rockley Drive. Here's this car. It's coming into my particular lane. And out of my mouth comes these words, Oh, golly. That's what came out of my mouth. Oh, golly. I literally said, oh, golly. And then the person kind of went its own, his own way, or her, I forget, went their own way, and I went driving down the road praising the Lord for Ogali. And here's why I praise the Lord for Ogali. Because without my even noticing it during those 10 years or so that I had walked with the Lord, without my really even noticing it, the Lord had taken away my previous foul mouth, and he replaced it with Ogali, is what he replaced it with. And that was glorious to me because all of those little prayers that I had prayed in those 10 years of walking with the Lord, that he would cleanse my lips and cleanse my heart, he proved to be answered in that circumstance. All those times where I did have time to think about the words I was going to say, and I was able to put a guard over my mouth so what I wanted to say didn't come out of my mouth, the Lord had done a changing work within me. And that was evidenced by this circumstance that he began, he did a, a work within my heart, that my heart was good. My heart was where it needed to be. And that manifested itself in my ways so much so that I would exclaim, oh godly, because again, out of the ha- mouth, the heart speaks. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks, the scripture says. And Jesus there had changed my heart and he continues to change my heart. And that's a cause of rejoicing. And so I would encourage you in this, if you know, the, the attitude of your heart, if, if the behavior of your life, you find yourself sort of go, why do I do that? Just keep bringing that back to the Lord. Keep confessing those things to the Lord. Be vigilant about the going on of your heart because sooner or later, what's going on in here is going to come out in the lives that we are living. So be vigilant. Guard your heart, as he said earlier. Ask yourself, is my heart drifting? That's what backsliding is. 
Is my heart drifting? If it is, if you notice that it is or you don't want it to, well then take care to prevent that from happening at this stage, lest you end up down here as time goes on. Practice the presence of the Lord. That's how you keep your heart from drifting. Practice the presence of the Lord. Without looking weird, don't talk out loud. People think you're peculiar. Although, just put something in your ear and they'll think you're on the phone or whatever. But just silently pray to the Lord throughout your day when you're able. And just maintain his presence. Dialogue with him through your day. Keep short accounts with him. And so if you sin, you don't have to wait till bedtime to confess all your sins for that particular day. When you realize you've sinned, confess that sin. That's how you keep yourself from drifting, and you confess it. When it happens, or even when you notice the desire in your heart for it to happen, and it may not come out of your life, confess that, Lord, this is not an attitude that pleases you. Lord, I don't want this in my heart. Root this out. Find a song that you sing or something, some scripture song or some verse that you can, uh, you can memorize. Guard your heart, uh, for our lives, as it said, will be filled with the fruit of our ways, whether that's for good or for evil. And I'll say this, if you take care of your heart each day, and you keep your heart in the right place with the Lord, you can know for sure that you will come to the end of your days having never backslidden. Right? That's not profound, is it? But if you do that each day and each moment of the day, you can know for certain that you will come to the end of your days having never backslidden. And I would imagine that is the goal of each one of us. And I would say that's great news. I leave encouraged by these words. I hope you do as well. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for that reality. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit to empower us, to enable us uh, to walk in this, these ways. Lord, the Scripture says that this is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of our own efforts, but the fruit of the Spirit. So it's a work that you're doing with us, uh, within us as we simply make ourselves available to you. And Lord, I commit myself and each of us here, I hope, we commit ourselves to you to do just that, Lord, to walk in your ways. Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts. We pray that we would guard our hearts with your enabling. And we'd keep our eyes fixed on you as we run hard after you today and every day. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.